Welcome to Amplify, the Revolution Her podcast, dedicated to uplifting, empowering, and amplifying women's voices globally. Our community is a powerful collective of women who are ready to live the lives they always dreamed they would. Together, our strength as inspiring and ambitious women is truly unstoppable. I'm Maria Locker, founder and CEO of Revolution Her. And I'm your co-host, Grace Moores, founding partner of Revolution Her. And today we're talking about moving beyond low-wage work with Amanda Freeman. Now, Amanda is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Hartford and a writer and researcher of motherhood and work, currently residing in Westport, Connecticut. Her first book, Getting Me Cheap, is co-authored with Lisa Dodson. Based on years of in-depth fieldwork and hundreds of eye-opening interviews, Getting Me Cheap explores how millions of women and their children are trapped into lives of stunted opportunity and poverty in service of giving others of us the lives we seek. Destined to rank with other published works like Evicted and Nickel and Dimed for its revelatory glimpse into how our society functions behind the scenes, Getting Me Cheap also offers a way forward with both policy solutions and a keen moral vision for organizing women across class lines. We are thrilled. Please help us welcome Amanda Freeman. Hi, Amanda. Hi, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Oh, thank you for being here. (laughs) We have lots to talk about today, don't we, Grace? We do. We do. So let's dive straight in. (laughs) All right. So, I mean, first off, this topic is going to go into so many different nitty gritty conversations that we're really, you know, excited to talk about because it's not a topic that really comes up very often and it really should be. But we want to talk about, you know, first and foremost, how did you find yourself on this path to exploring the world of low-wage work and women? Yeah. So I, I think this, the idea or, or somehow the term, you know, studying sociology in college, the term work-family conflict was really interesting to me. Um, and, you know, I, I think a lot, I think about this with my students. I'm a professor now, so teaching um, undergraduate students, you know, I think a lot of them say they, they want to have a professional career and they want to have a family um, so just this idea that it can be so difficult to work the two together and there can be so many obstacles, you know, was troubling to me even as an undergraduate. Um, and I did, you know, do some papers and kind of start studying at that point. It wasn't probably until graduate school that I came to just realize how um, that concept was so oriented toward affluent professional women Um, And even like all the literature and just what's written about it, you know, feminism really takes this concept on, um, you know, feminists that I really admired, but so much of it is geared toward, you know, flexibility at work, maybe daycare at work, parental leave. Mm -hmm. Um, So things that are really applying to salaried professional women. Um, And this is not to say, I mean, we still need to be advocating for those kind of policies for salaried professional women, because if if we don't have them there, how are we ever going to have them for these large numbers of women who are stuck in low-wage work, right? Um, but I started to do some of this. So when I was in graduate school, my co-author, Lisa Dodson, was my professor. Um, we both had 
a history of single motherhood. Um, and she was working on a couple of different projects and I worked as an, you know, doing interviews for her. Um, and so those were some of the first interviews, I think all the way back, this data set goes all the way back to 2012. Um, so really just kind of starting. And, and at the time I had my two, she was then, I think my young daughter was with me on some of the interviews. I would basically, you know, take her to the playground, just go where, you know, or to the women's apartment or wherever it was easiest for them to talk. Um, wow. And so just kind of hearing their stories, a lot of people say to me, isn't it so hard to get them to talk to you, you know, the interview subjects? And I would say, no, I mean, I think most people, especially moms, I'm asking about motherhood and work, and they might not have another outlet, they're really busy. Um, they they really open up a lot to you, right? And kind of venting about their struggles and what's going on. And basically just noticing that what they were experiencing was this really extreme form of work-family conflict. And yet they didn't even really recognize it as such, right? Because that's kind of like even an affluent term. I mean, they're not like really thinking about it in the way of policy advocacy, or they're just like piecing together, usually like multiple jobs. Um, I think three quarters of the women were single mothers. So they're the only ones available to do, you know, the school, the doctor appointments, just kind of everything. Um, And then, you know, navigating in there, some of them were receiving, uh, you know, in different public assistance programs, Um, So to me, they were experiencing this really extreme form of work-family conflict, and they didn't have any of the ways of alleviating it. Like for myself, if I'm in a period that's really busy at work, I hire a babysitter for more hours or, you know, maybe some other kind of like, maybe I have to hire a tutor because I can't step in and help with the same level of schoolwork. I mean, they just were without all of those kind of, I would think of them as parenting supports, right? Um. And so to me, it was this extreme case. And yet I still being interested academically in this area of work family conflict and in terms of public policy, it was really just not represented. And so getting me cheap is really trying to do that kind of come in um, as a, you know, reflection of the voices of these women and their experience of work family conflict. It's so powerful. I mean, And I love that you touch on the fact that, you know, it is more of an affluent conversation that's happened up until now, but there is a huge subsection of the population that, you know, struggles. I mean, before Revolution Her, we were known as the mompreneurs organization. And so many women that we talked to that struggled with work and family, the balance, the conflict, being taken seriously. Um, And I know Grace is going to touch on this in her next question, but you know, I'm so glad that you're touching on this and bringing it to the forefront and that we're able to talk about this today. Yeah. So this is actually, so there are two of you, you and Lisa that have written mm-hmm. the book, but the um, the work and family conflict, is that something that you specialize in specifically? Is that, that's your main area? I would say, yeah. I mean, um, I'm trying to think of Lisa has a much longer career, I would say, than, than me. But that's yeah. what I've been looking at, right? The struggle between work and family for women. And then yeah. looking, yeah, like across the income spectrum. And knowing that people people are all over the place on the income spectrum within their lifetime, right? Yeah. I mean, I see that all the time too. Yeah. Um, but just the people who are trapped at the bottom have much less flexibility, right? I don't, I'm trying to think, I, I think we spoke with one 
woman who had the ability to work remotely. If I look at that versus in my peer set of women that I know, I mean, a lot, especially now post COVID, there's a lot more ability to work remotely, which is really, as we know, I mean, it can be family friendly, it can be family difficult, but just having that option is huge. Yeah. Yeah. What can we do to ease that conflict at home? Yeah. I mean, I would say like that affluent women have many more tools, right? But we still struggle. Um, So we'll get to that later in terms of policy solutions. But I do think there are some policy solutions that can help. Um, I think among the women we spoke with, I mean, there many of them, if not all of them, are trying to find a way up and out, right? Um, A lot of them are trying to go back to school because we know that's something that can result in higher wages and that more um, flexible salary job. That's a real distinction. So being paid as an hourly worker versus a salaried employee, um, you're much more likely to have that benefits package. And, you know, that might include the on-site daycare, the, um, you know, parental leave hours. I mean, it was really surprising to me how few of the women that we talked with even had sick leave, um, mm. you know, and so, and in some cases I would try to step in and say, depending on the state they lived that, you know, I knew that they would qualify for even like state sick leave. Right. Yeah. But for people who are, I mean, a lot of them were piecing together part-time jobs. They just couldn't even imagine like who they would talk to about that. Um, you know, they're trying not to make waves at work, Several of them mentioned, you know, this real discrimination against moms at work, M- much more so than I, I mean, I, I feel like I know some professional women who, um, you know, maybe don't talk about their kids at much at work, try not to cry at work. I've heard mm-hmm. that before, actually. Um, but for, for these women, like the physical, like feeling like they, they had to hide the fact that they had kids. Because if somebody, if their boss found out that they're a single mom of kids, they would just think that they would be late or they wouldn't show up and and maybe they wouldn't get the job or they wouldn't get the promotion. So actually, like one of the women was saying she she kept a photo of her kids, but she would say they were her sister's kids if somebody asked at work. So just actually hiding the fact that you have kids. And I mean, we, we did also have a few women physically hiding kids at work. Um, which I always like to call out, like, you know, I think it's easy to judge those situations. Um, but for the women, you know, you know, as a, as a mom, you want to keep your kids close so that you can know that they're safe, keep an eye yeah. on them. And then they're always trying, you know, they don't want to lose their job, their paycheck, because that means, you know, potentially losing housing. And then the worst, I think, would be the fear of losing your child. Yeah. Right. You have... Um, a department of social service investigation of of your family. It's a cycle, right? Like what you're describing mm-hmm. is literally a cycle. So it's almost like, you know, when a woman finds herself in low wage work, it's almost impossible to get out of it because mm-hmm. everything is stacked against you. You don't want to rock the boat. You need the income. And, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's mind boggling. I was going to ask you, you know, if you could pick out one story, from getting me cheap that really stuck with you, you know, was there, was there one woman's story and I'm sure there's plenty, but you know, who kind of just nagged at your mind and kept you up and really made you 
think a lot? I think I would just um, cite the the ones where the women talked a lot about either um, being in an apprenticeship program was one thing, right? Because it, it feels like once you, it's actually really difficult to get in. So mm-hmm. once you get in, if you're able to stay with the program, you're really going to be able to move up and eventually get a job in the trades, which actually can be really high paying and secure, mm-hmm. right? Um, so those women, or there was a couple other women who were pretty close to getting their college degree um, and just getting derailed, right? And a lot of times it was by childcare. Um, the apprenticeship story, I believe, was um, the mom just, she had to move to a different city uh, to be enrolled in the apprenticeship program. And a lot of people say, well, isn't there childcare in the United States for low-income families? Well, the average waiting list in these really populous urban areas can be all the way like a year, two years, right? So if you you have an impending job, you can't wait, right? She actually had a voucher that was approved and she couldn't find anywhere that would take it because that's also a struggle, right? Um, And she just couldn't find a sitter that she could afford. Apprenticeship hours can be tricky too. They often start really, really early in the morning. So if you're a single parent, that can be difficult, like four or five o'clock in the morning. Um, So she wound up finding someone, I think it was on Craigslist, um, but she did not feel secure about the arrangement. It seemed kind of sketchy to her. Um, and then it just resulted in that the woman actually did not show up to pick her son off the bus. And so she just left the apprenticeship program. She just said, I will not put my child at risk. Um, but then she's kind of back to square one. Right. Right. And it's that cycle, isn't it? It's that cycle of, of, yeah. It's, it's the back and forth. And so we, we, you know, we kind of discussed the way that, you know, a lot of women find themselves, they just kind of get stuck in low wage work because there's almost an inflexibility or they feel there's no other choice but to do that kind of work. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit more and and maybe some of the ways that we could explore more flexibility for them? Right. I mean, my, I the optimistic part of me hopes that the labor crunch that's going on in the United States right now will have some impact on this. I mean, mm-hmm. hopefully it will make employers realize they have to be more attractive to retain employees. Um, you know, on a policy level, we haven't changed the federal minimum wage in the United States for like 13 years. So I think you can pull up on your computer. I think uh, the New York Times has one of these calculators and also the um I'm trying to think of the other, the name of the other one, a living wage calculator to kind of figure out, okay, this is where I live and what are the wages that I need to make? And so, I mean, I would laugh about it with some of the women, like if, you know, if you're a single mom, you have three or four kids, you really need to be making like $80,000, right? Depending on the city where you live. And that's just not, you know, I mean, lots of them are working full-time plus another job. Wow. And the, and and also having real insecurity that that makes them not as present as a parent, which is of yeah. course true. They're also really tired. Many of the moms we talked to worked overnight because they felt like that was time where their kids wouldn't be missing out. But to me, I'm like, well, then when are you sleeping? Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, uh, so, I mean, to me, I do think education is a way out. Um, you know, on a personal level. So there's the employers. I mean, also employers making the job more 
you know, higher paid and more manageable employers offering flexibility, not necessarily. I mean, a lot of these employees have to be there and physically present, but they could let them choose their shifts or if a crisis comes up with kids, be more flexible about making right. up hours um, and those kinds of things. I mean, in the United States, Walmart and McDonald's employ the most recipients of public benefits. So that means, you know, you can be working full time at these places and still qualifying for welfare aid. Yeah. Right. Um, so I think on a personal level, how would I advise somebody? I think it, you really do need to be trying to move up, get your college degree um, or get into a trade. One of these things. I mean, welfare reform in the United States made it much more difficult for poor mothers specifically to get a college degree. Um, I can't remember the numbers, but just tens of thousands less are able to pursue it. Now, we used to count mm -hmm. um, we used to count college as work in terms of receiving public benefits, if that makes sense. Um, we no longer do. A few states do in a limited way. Um, so you just, you used to be able to raise kids, receive public benefits while you're getting your college degree. Um, and, you know, there are limited studies of this, but it's, it's generally wildly successful. Like I've seen 80, 90, a hundred percent after receiving a four-year college degree, never rely on public benefits again. So you would think that, yeah. you know, we'd really want to make it easier for that to happen. Um, but the project I did before this was about low, low income, single moms in higher education and the obstacles that they're facing are just really brutal also. So it's a difficult path. Yeah. It, it doesn't sound like, I mean, it doesn't really sound like there's any easy way out once you're in low wage work. And so I think that's, what's so intriguing about the book that you've written is, is this idea that, you know, <clears throat> we've talked about flexibility and we've talked about moving beyond low wage work. Um, it's just finding the path that's going to work. And if everything's stacked against you, how can you find that path, right? Yeah. Um, I know Grace has a, a question to kind of elaborate on that too. What steps, I mean, we talked about some of the steps that women can take in order to get back, to move beyond that low wage. But what about those women that are maybe in higher professions, higher waged professions? What can they do to advocate for women who are in those lower positions? Because you could be working in the same company, for example, um, earning a higher salary, but those people in those lower paid jobs, what can they do to help support them? Right. So I do think that part of it is just awareness and visibility. Um, so I think that's, I mean, that's definitely why we wanted to write this book. Um, there's actually an example in the book about University of Massachusetts uh, professor that I spoke with. And she was saying that, you know, they had this tiered system at the university for like, for instance, janitorial staff, all the way up to like administrative and faculty, um, where it was really different, the parental leave that you got. I mean, the the lowest wage staff were getting almost nothing, like maybe six days. And then the high, you know, the highest ones, it was, it was much better. I can't remember the specifics. Um, but she did say that once the campus was kind of made aware of it, there were professors and administrators who were willing to really step up in solidarity with these lower wage workers and say this was not acceptable. Um, and there was demonstrations and the policy is, is, you know, there's much more parity in terms of the policy now. So, I, you know, I feel like there are heartening examples like that. 
And when people ask what they can do, I mean, I, I usually think of it as kind of three tiers. One of them being like, how are you treating low-wage workers in your life, right? I mean, is your... You, I think one in seven childcare workers are living in poverty. So like a lot of us are employing, you know, or interacting with childcare workers, elder care workers, the fast at the fast food restaurant, someone serving your coffee. Um, So, you know, kind of, especially if you're the employer, you're thinking of your house cleaner, like how is that relationship? There's actually a lot of nonprofit organizations, or maybe not a lot, but um, one's called hand in hand um, that you can actually join with, a domestic worker who you employ to advocate on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's different kinds of things you can do on that kind of micro level, I would say. And then, you know, for, if you're working for an organization, I would definitely suggest that it's your responsibility to kind of find out what are the different benefit levels and what are the tiers, you know, maybe you work as a corporate salaried employee, but is there like a bottling factory? Is there a warehouse? And if if those are warehouse workers, how are they treated kind of in your place of employment? And then I would say the third level would be public policy solutions um, that are helpful. I mean, a couple examples that have been salient recently were, you know, the child tax credit in the United States that was changed in terms of the, I don't know if they're calling it like the COVID extension expired Mm -hmm. and just nobody is willing to step up um you know 27 million kids don't receive that because the changes were not renewed right that really just means so you know the child tax credit is income qualified um so you have to make low enough but you also have to create enough tax liability because it's not refundable so there's so it's actually not reaching the people who don't make enough, right? Yeah. It's actually not reaching the lowest earners, huh. which makes almost no sense because that's who it's designed to reach, right? Um, universal child care is a policy that's supported by, you know, n- polling says like 70 to 80% of Americans support universal child care. We don't have it. I mean, it was in Biden's first social infrastructure plan. It fell out. Um, similar with parental leave, wow. we're one of the few countries that don't have paid parental leave. Both Democrats and Republicans seem to support it, and we we don't have it. Um, so I would say, especially in terms of childcare, it seems to be like the way forward is through the states right now. Um, during the midterms, New Mexico actually approved a ballot measure that makes universal child care a right for children from 0 to 5. Um, and this is a measure that's not income qualified. So in, yeah, in many yeah. ways, it, it you know, it helps women of or, you know, parents of yeah. all income levels. So it might be something that can be supported by a wider group of people. Yeah. Um, and I think having reliable, high quality, safe child care would be indispensable to the the women we spoke with. Oh, I mean, I think that's life changing, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and and so we're recording. You're in the U.S. We're here in Canada, and I can tell you the conversations and the amount of media that has been around. You know, our minimum wage has gone up. We've just established a universal um, daycare coverage of ten dollars a day for every family. Oh um, wow! In certain it's provinces, being rolled out. it's not. It's just coming out. It's just coming. So, um, you know, there's things that 
like you said, people have been saying for years, decades, that certain things have to happen, and yet you don't see the policy changes happening. Um, so, you know, I think a book like what you've written at least brings that conversation to light, mm-hmm. but having conversations like this too, you know, for anyone who's listening and thinking, you know, this isn't right. I, There's got to be a better way. Um, I love that you've suggested, you know, if you are working for an employer to go and and just ask some questions, right? Mm -hmm. Find out what makes sense and and see if there's someone you can advocate for. I think those are really great starting points. Um, And it's just, it's so stressful to even think about it, but we're not the women going through it right now, right? Mm -hmm. So if there's anything you can do to help make someone else's day a little bit better. That's what we kind of always say. Like, you can't change the whole world, but you can change your world bit by bit, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I've, I've got one last question for you, actually. And really, just I know the, the book was done before the pandemic. Is that right? Well, Lisa or, and or I had almost, we, no, Lisa and I had almost finished the manuscript and then the pandemic happened. So, there was a lot of scrambling and we just did decide to add, um, a set of what ha- wound up having to be phone interviews. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I would just, I, I always say, I think the pandemic just, you know, really revealed inequality that was already there. Yeah. In many ways, I do think it, I mean, I heard more about struggling moms and, and specifically single moms during the pandemic yeah. than I had ever heard about in the news before. So maybe in terms of visibility, the yeah. pandemic will turn out to be helpful. I mean, yeah. that's what I was going to ask. Actually, do you see a change in in that? Um, maybe with more visibility, but do you do you think um, with the economic situation as well and the pandemic that there will be? Um, I think like changes to that data set. Yeah. Like- I, I mean, I feel a little depressed, but I just read something. The United Nations is saying that women will be set back 10 years by the pandemic. I know. And I do think the poorest women are always hit the hardest in that way. Yeah. I, I actually think about their kids. I mean, a lot of them were just really worried about, you know, they didn't have the same kind of like high quality Wi-Fi. They did not have tutoring and they were really worried that it was going to be um, lead to worse outcomes for their kids. And I think we don't really know that yet, but I mean, yeah. I don't think that would be a huge leap to take that that would be true. And, yeah. you know, all, all of the women, like their kids were their priority. They all wanted their kids to go to college and, you know, we, we want our kids to do better than us. Right. Yeah. So I, I really worry that that it's going to be rough for this. I mean, it's going to be rough for this generation across income levels, but I think usually poorer kids fare worse. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a lot of interesting things that will be still yet to be seen, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, well, before we hit our rapid fire questions, we just want to ask you what's next for you? What projects do you have on the go now? Because this is fascinating work that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, so I, like I said, I, I do generally look at motherhood and work and the integration of the two. And so I'm just at the beginning of a project looking at um, the way in which women, when they have young kids, um, more affluent women generally, but it doesn't have to be, take kind of... Uh, I've been using the term like Tupperware offshoot jobs, but like Zaya activewear is one of them or some, you know, jewelry, different kind of like selling um, direct Uh sales positions to fit around their kids' lives. 
Um, so I, I'm really interested. My work is qualitative. So it's all about kind of talking to and interviewing women and just kind of seeing like the motivations behind that. Um, mm-hmm. And then also how does it kind of change family life? And I'm also interested in terms of like what happened, how does that work professionally after? Interesting. Right? Um, we'll definitely chat afterwards yeah. too, because we, yeah. um, so there's a book called The Gig Life, G-I-G. Um which we we provided like some some data for them too and some quotes and so happy to connect you with the author he's in the states as well but it's fascinating as well to look at flex work and and the different Mm -hmm. opportunities that come like you mentioned um you know different multi-level marketing companies or even flex work like with uber eats and um all kinds of stuff so i think you know if anything, you know, we can probably talk down the road too about how work is changing to maybe accommodate all these uh, different subsets of potential earners, mm. right? So, yeah, no, that sounds great. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, this has been just, like I said, eye opening. And um, we're just so thankful that you could join us today, but we're not done yet. We're just going to drill you with some fire, rapid fire questions um, because now everyone's, you know, gotten a sense of what you do and the work behind, you know, what you've written. But now we want to know a little bit about you, Amanda. So before we close off for today, we're going to ask you some rapid fire questions. It's really easy breezy. Just I know. I'm a little scared of this, but it'll be okay. <laughs> oh, no. Actually, Isn't I'll go first. Uh, yeah. I'm going to go first. Um, if you had a theme song, what would it be? Oh. Or what's a favorite song? What gets you going? Well, it's so funny. I, I'm actually embarrassed to say this, but I am loving that the Lizzo song. I don't oh, even know yes. what I love her it, right the now. The funny thing is, I just did not. It's the one about put your hair back, check your nails. Yeah. Hilariously, how did I? I never heard this song before like <laughs> six months ago. Oh, so I'm playing it like all the time. And my 16 year old daughter is like, Mom, that song's from like six years ago. <laughs> I guess it is. But I just had no idea. So I found it. It's new to me. I'm loving it. I love That's it. That's awesome. You can't go wrong it. with Lizzo. No, she's amazing. <laughs> yeah, we're big fans. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. What is your word of the year for this year? My word of for, for this upcoming year or the last yeah. year? This year. This year coming. This year coming up. I'll say hope. Oh, I like that. Hey. Okay. What do you wish more women would do for themselves? More women would do for themselves. I think just treat themselves the way that they treat their best friends or their children. We should yeah. all do that. We, we're, we're so great to the people that mean so much to us. And then we're so hard on ourselves. Myself yeah. included. Oh, yeah. all of us all included. Of us. <laughs> yeah. It's so true though. And I'm, I, we ask that question every now and then, and it's, it's very similar and yet we don't listen to it ourselves. So that's, um, yeah. I'm glad you shared that. All right. Where's your favorite place in the world to be? Oh, I'm such a homebody, probably my house. Yeah. yeah. I just like <laughs> to be home. <laughs> I've never but. been to Connecticut. Like it's quite gorgeous. I've heard though. Well, it's funny. I mean, my husband, we're both professors. My husband teaches in New York city and then I teach in Hartford, which is kind of in the middle of the state. So we both have pretty lengthy commutes and I would say like the kids really live in our town, but we're, (laughs) (laughs) so 
that's why I just, I mean, it's less honestly about the place and more just like, I just value like being at home with the family downtime, um, that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. As your homebody then, what's your favorite thing to do locally? Hmm. Probably go to the beach. We do have a beach um, in our town that's really nice. And if you live on the East Coast in the United States, our weather is not great. So it's a very short time when we can go to the beach. (laughs) But I, you know, I grew up in outside of Boston. I'm a New Englander. So I appreciate the seasons. And I think we appreciate the nice weather more because it's not around as much. You probably yeah. have the similar yeah, or the yeah, same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We're both I, nodding our heads. Like, yeah. Yeah. I will say that my daughter is desperate to go to school for college in California because she doesn't oh. go the same way as me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her so. we'll come visit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We got one last question for you. Uh, what TV show are you watching right now that's just bringing you all the feels or all the excitement? This is also embarrassing, but I will admit, I I just love the Netflix series Virgin River. Oh, yes. I love that too. (laughs) But yeah, no, I think it's, um, I mean, it it is just like interesting. I get asked these questions all the time because I'll teach about the sociology of gender or, you know, gender roles and this and that. And, but I'm not immune to a good love story. Um, And I especially like, like, it's kind of a woodsy love story, right? I yeah, think yeah, yeah. Film in Canada. Um, and it's like with middle-aged people, which I appreciate because a lot of times you're watching and it's like 20 somethings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. filmed in BC in Squamish where one of my mm-hmm. good friends lives actually. And um, one of my other friends, so we all went to university together. They, we have a chat group together. She was like, I can't even believe they're in your backyard. So she's posted <laughs> all these pictures of meeting all the stars from Virgin River. I don't oh, watch that's it so myself, cool. but yeah. I've been told I have to watch it now. Oh, so. you do. I told you this before. You have I to know. watch it. <laughs> you don't have time. That's the problem. Right? I know. I know. I know. Oh, Amanda, this was such a fun conversation. Thank you so much. And I hope that, you know, us being able to chat with you today and having you share the journey to what's brought you to writing this incredible book and bringing these issues to light, um, you know, for anyone who's listening, I hope this has really kind of opened some eyes and some options for people to share more and do more if they can. So yes, uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, we'll be watching and looking forward to your next projects. And um, hopefully we'll be able to chat with you again soon. Yeah, if there's anything we can do to support you, please let us know. Like We'd love to be able Always. to help. So thank yeah. you so much. Yes. All right. And for those listening, thank you for tuning in. Um, We love being able to bring incredible guests like Amanda online with us. So please, you know, Revolution Here, uh, Revolution Her is here to support the women in our community and beyond. If you found something valuable from today's session, please share, rate, and, um, you know, continue to follow along. And we will be here next time with another episode. Thank you so much. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye.